Good morning, church. My name is Dustin Atchley. Um, I am the director of student ministries here at King's Cross. I'm also a pastoral assistant. Um, and if you know much about King's Cross, if you've been around, you know that normally we just preach through books of the Bible. And we've been in uh, Matthew, but I am not Clint, and we are not in Matthew this morning. Uh, and it's a good reminder that uh, there is still sickness in the world, right? So the flu is real. Um, but I am, I, I could not be more excited um, for our time together. So let me pray one more time and we will jump in. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, for the clarity of your word. I pray that you would give us soft hearts to receive it this morning and that you would heal the broken. Um, you would cut the halty and those who are suffering, you would minister to them. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have ever felt trapped? Like, like caught in something you can't escape. When I think trapped, I think quicksand. It looks solid, but when you begin to apply pressure to it, it begins to liquefy. Slowly but surely, whoever has fallen into the quicksand begins to sink. The process is usually long enough for the person to be aware of what has happened, even to ponder to the point of regret. And as you sink, the sand, which was not strong enough to support your body weight, is strong enough to keep you from getting back out. Your struggling and your energy just kills you faster if there's no one there to help you out. Now, maybe your blood pressure began to rise a little bit as I was describing that. Um, because you've seen a movie uh, where somebody gets caught in quicksand, or you, you can imagine maybe what that's like. It's truly a terrifying thought to be caught in a trap with no escape, able to do nothing. But rest assured, um, barring some supernatural miracle, I don't think the floor is going to turn to quicksand, and most of us are safe from it in our daily life, at least physically. Most of us are true from it in a physical sense, but there's a greater peril which our souls may well sink into. Sin is like quicksand. Sin looks solid, like maybe it's something you can build your life on. But as you begin to rely on it, it cannot take the weight. It deepens and it widens and it sucks everything around it up. But it is strong enough that once you're in its clutches, it can keep you from getting out. It seeks to destroy us and everyone around us. And at the bottom, our sin is our fault. The disease, the problem, the root is inside us, in our hearts. And the sin in our rebellious Hearts will destroy our most intimate relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with others, if we do not rule over it. Instead of rightly diagnosing the problem in our own hearts, our tendency is to look around and to, to blame something outside of ourselves. And this is what sin has always done and will continue to do. 
Not only that, but we see that sin multiplies as time passes, and man alone is helpless to stop it. I hope that when our time together is finished, it will be clear that we must seek God in faith and obedience, or our sin will destroy us and those around us in this present life and eternally. The stakes are infinitely high, and our actions affect not only us, but everyone around us. Now, our text today is from Genesis 4, probably a familiar story, but I hope God will give us fresh eyes and soft hearts to receive the word that he has for us today. Before we get into the text, it would probably help just a little bit to situate uh, this text within the larger narrative of Scripture, within Genesis so far. So the book of Genesis is believed to be written by Moses, along with the following four books of the Bible. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It tells of the beginnings of humanity, the beginnings of sin, the beginnings of the gospel promise, and the beginnings of the Hebrew nation, who are God's people. Right? These Hebrews are the original audience that Moses had prepared this book for, and through whom he would eventually bring the Messiah. So far in our story, um, God, on the first day, he has created the light, and on the second day, he has separated the waters above from the waters below, and then on the third day, he calls up the dry land from the waters, and then on the fourth day, he fills the heavens with the luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars, and then on the fifth day, he, he fills the, the sky, the heavens with the birds, and the sea with the fish, and he, he creates the living animals on the sixth day. And also on the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And he instructed them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. God places them in the garden in Eden and tells them they can eat of all but one tree in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But do you remember what happens after that in Genesis 3? So God rests on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, and we get to Genesis 3, and the serpent slithers up, and he starts talking to Eve. And then Adam and Eve eat from the tree, rebelling against God, causing sin and death to enter the world. They are cast out of the Garden of Eden, which brings us to our text. The question is, what will happen now? Right? What will sin do to the world? What are the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision played out? We'll come to our first point here in the text. We should receive God's warning. We should receive God's warning. Look to the text with me. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So from the beginning, looking at the text, we see God was present with the boys, right? Even though their parents, Adam and Eve, had been kicked out of the garden, verse 1 shows that Eve is crediting Cain's birth to the Lord. Cain's name means something like, I have acquired, right? Cain and Kanah, you can hear it. Cain, Kanah, I have acquired. You can hear the similarity. Now, why would they name their son this? Let's think back for just a second to Genesis 3.15. Let your eyes travel over there if you've got your Bibles open. There, God promised an offspring to Eve that would crush the serpent's head. It reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It seems like then, in this moment, Adam and Eve are showing confidence in God's promise. They seem to be expecting that he would fulfill his promise immediately through this offspring. They pretty much named their son, I have acquired the snake crusher, the one who was promised. Then the text tells us that the boys made sacrifices to God in verses 3 and 4, and that God regarded Abel's sacrifice, but he did not have regard for Cain's. And immediately, Cain becomes dejected. And then God asks him, what's wrong? If you do well, will you not be accepted? See, Cain had just learned that he had done something wrong, right? He had learned what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And rather than humbly learning from his mistake, he becomes upset. And then God warns him, if you are not careful, sin will ravage you. It is at the door waiting for you, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God is graciously warning Cain that he has done something that is unacceptable, and there will be a temptation to continue in sin towards unrighteousness that leads to destruction. And the, the author's language here, Moses' language here is particular, and it seems to be drawing us back to Genesis 3, right? The words here for desire and rule, those are the exact same words that God uses when he pronounces the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin back in Genesis 3.16. So look back with me to Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In calling up these words, the narrator is making a connection for us to the previous chapter. It's like God is saying, remember what happened when your parents disobeyed me? And this language even of crouching, it could be an allusion back to the serpent. Crouching, waiting to strike, coiled up. It's kind of like this. You remember when you were younger and you lied, maybe for the first time? So I was a terrible liar. Um, my parents knew immediately when I was lying. And so when I, when I proceeded with my lie, they graciously asked me, is that what really happened? 
See, my parents gave me the opportunity to reconsider my sinful actions and change my course rather than committing to the sin. God is doing something similar here in this moment. And this is often how he deals with us. Even better, he's appealing to a concrete example from Cain's parents, Adam and Eve, for Cain to consider. God corrects Cain while the stakes are still low and warns him and us that if we persist in sin, it is crouching at the door and its intent is to ravage us, to destroy us. What's easy to forget here is how gracious God is being with Cain. How many earthly parents enjoy seeing their children destroy themselves? Like, for example, what loving parent would push their child out in front of a car or subject them to anything else that would lead to their ruin? Most parents, earthly parents, sinful as they are, can't imagine doing something like that. Now, how much greater is our Heavenly Father's love for us and His children than our sinful earthly parents? There are very real and very big consequences for our sin. And God does not desire that any of His children should perish from them and be destroyed by them. He interacts with us. He disciplines us. It's not a sign of hate, but a sign of love. Why? Because sin deepens and it widens and it sucks everything around it up. So when God warns you, you should not ignore him. God desires that you should pursue him, not your sin, because it's what's best for you and what brings him glory. Now, perhaps you're prone to ignore God's warning. God, in his kindness, uses many means to warn us. In the text, we see God speak directly and audibly to Cain. So he may speak to you directly and audibly. However, most often, he uses his word, the Bible, to warn us. He may also use leaders to warn you. He might use your brothers and sisters in Christ to warn you. He might use your emotions to warn you. He might use your conscience to warn you. He might supernaturally warn you. He might write it on the wall for you. <laughs> been there. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been impressing something on you for a while now that you've been putting off. Maybe you've been passive in your marriage. Maybe you've neglected your kids. Maybe you've started to develop some small sinful pattern in your life. Just a small lie here and there to your supervisor at work. Just letting your eyes lust for a second or two in passing. Just a little bit of gossip under the guise of caring. Please, brothers and sisters, take his warning seriously. His desire is what's best for you, for the world, and for himself. If you submit to God's desires, everybody wins. And that's the exact opposite of what we're about to see Cain do. Therefore, be soft and tender to his commands and warnings to you rather than stiff-necked and stubborn. Receive God's warning. Receive God's warning. We do not want to imitate Cain, which brings us to our second point. Rule over your sin. Rule over your sin. Sin. Let's look back to the text, verse 8. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, remember what God said in verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God let Cain know what he must do. He must rule his sin. How would Cain rule his sin, you ask? The same way anyone rules their sin, by reliance and trust in God. Our mind has already been in Genesis 3. Let's think once again. The serpent convinced Cain's parents that they ought not to trust God. You remember how he started? Did God really say? Did it, but did he actually say that? In the garden, the snake convinced Adam and Eve to doubt God's character. Now, here we see that rather than receiving God's warning and ruling his sin, Cain dives headfirst into his sin. He hardened his heart and commits what many would consider to be the ultimate betrayal. He murders his brother, Abel. Now, the text does not clearly indicate whether it was premeditated or a crime of passion, but given what we know about Abel, we have little reason to think that he provoked Cain to wrath. So it seems then that Cain planned this out. He invited his brother out and committed first-degree murder. Remember our previous illustration? This would be like you lying to your parents, them asking you what really happened, and then them giving you some time to go consider your actions, right? Their hope when they give you some time to consider is that you would reflect, you would reflect on their teachings, and that you would come back and heed their warning. You would repent and turn away from your sin. But rather than that, this is like going back to your room and, and, and not repenting, but now you're, you're doubling down on the lie. You're, you're becoming more elaborate. You're, you're creating all these stories to go with it. And moreover, when you come back, you start to tell your lie with more feeling and more zeal. And now you, you've pulled your brother in with you, right? You're, you're incriminating those around you. Cain does not repent and turn away from his sin after the Lord's warning. He doubles down. Rather than looking inside and seeing his own sin and its deadly consequences, he looks to the one that God used to reveal his own sin in the first place, his brother Abel. Cain seems to think that removing this external circumstance, namely his godly brother, will somehow cure all his ills. And he murders Abel. But aren't we all Cain in this way? As our sin begins to manifest and the Lord begins to warn us, do we not all begin to make excuses? We say, well, if I wasn't so tired, I really would invest more time in my marriage. If they would just listen, I would disciple my kids. My boss doesn't care about me anyway, so why should I work hard for him? Why should I tell him the truth? I only looked for a second or two in passing. What's the big deal? It's not really gossip if they're my friend, right? And then when God uses our brother and sister to reveal our sin to us, rather than repenting and facing the sin within, we seek to murder our brothers and sisters. We are prone to be ruled by our sin. In Matthew 5.22, the Lord Jesus compares anger against one another's uh, brother in, in one's heart 
to murder. If you've wrongly been angry with your brother or sister, your judgment is comparable to murder in God's eyes. He does the same thing with lust. Jesus compares lusting after someone in your own heart to adultery. And that seemingly small sin may very well become a very, very big sin. Why? Because sin deepens and it widens and it sucks everything around it up. Be ruling your sin or it will be ruling you. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in the Screwtape Letters. He says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The devil doesn't care what the sin is as long as it rules you. Murder or cards, gluttony or exercise, public or private, it does not matter to him. And I don't mean that exercise is sin. I mean it can become an idol. And this ruling of sin should not characterize your fight against your own sin. It's not, it shouldn't be just for you, right? This, this ruling your own sin isn't just a private affair. There's a corporate aspect to this too. This is part of why we believe in church discipline. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. And then on down in verses 12 and 13, for what, I have, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So you don't have to be a jerk about it, but you are responsible for helping your brothers and sisters fight their sin as well. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Go to them. Live out Matthew 18 with them. Otherwise, the sin will deepen, and it will widen, and it will suck everything around it up. We must recognize that our greatest problem is not outside of us, but it's our own sin. It's crouching at the door, and we must rule over our sin. And what are the consequences of sin? This brings us to our last point. Remember the consequences of sin. Remember the consequences of sin. Let's look to the text, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Sin is deadly. God warned Cain that it was crouching at the door, and rather than heeding God's warning, Cain doubled down, killed his brother, and allowed his sin to rule him. Now, God has called him to give an account. God asks him, where is your brother? And Cain tries to lie and shrug it off. And God calls him on it, right? He tells him that he knows he killed his brother, and he must suffer the consequences for his determination to pursue his sin and not obey God. And the declaration is stout. So when you come back from your elaborate lie and your parents call you on it and and show you the hard evidence of your lie, you just shrug it. Just try and shrug it off. Right? Act, Act like it's not a big deal. You ever do that growing up? Like, act like it wasn't a big deal? Those were some of the worst memories I have as a kid. (laughs) Why? Why is that such a big deal to parents? Because my posture revealed that I did not understand the consequences of my actions. My parents, in their discipline of me, wanted to ensure that I understood it's a big deal. Obviously, we can't hear Cain's voice, but his words are evasive and minimizing in the text. He, best, he basically says, why are you bothering me, God? Then God declares the punishment, and it's severe. God kicks him off the ground where he spilled his brother's blood and says he will wander and be a fugitive. So when you come back from your elaborate lie and your, your parents call you on it, it's he, they, it's, it's taken from him. Everything is taken from him, right? So the, the consequences are severe and, and the punishment has come. Let's, for, for just a second, so Cain was a farmer, right? Let's think about this. Cain was a farmer, not only that, but it seems like he is probably still living with his parents and brothers somewhere in or near the land of Eden, Eden, albeit outside of the garden. So when God banishes Cain, He takes his livelihood, his home, and his family all at once. Not only that, but he says, you will always be restless. And there is no hope of you finding some new peace in the place to which you are going. That's a hard pill to swallow. And now we see Cain responds. Some of the severity, at least, is now clear to him. And we see the resolution. God extends some measure of grace to him by marking him so that he would not be killed. And then cast him out, not to die physically, but to wander without end away from God's presence. We must remember the consequences of sin. But that begs the question, are we capable of avoiding our sin? Do we have any reason to hope in light of these realities? Sin can absolutely cost you your livelihood, your home, and your family. Not heeding God's warnings 
and running harder towards sin can eventually cost you the very presence of God in your life. A good question to ask yourself when you're reading your Bible is why is this text here? Like, what does it teach me about God, about humanity, about myself? I think God inspired and included this text to demonstrate just how quickly and thoroughly the effects of sin had spread wider and deeper and illustrate how great the cost of sin is. It's a massive deal. Let me see if I can show you the difference in one generation of sin spreading between Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, okay? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were dwelling in the Garden of Eden where the Lord walked about. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel were dwelling outside of the Garden of Eden, but he wasn't there. The the Lord wasn't walking around in the cool of the day. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve did not offer sacrifices. They simply dwelled with the Lord. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel are now offering sacrifices to the Lord. And Cain's was found unacceptable. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to disobey by eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 4, Cain was tempted by the sin inside him and the jealousy within him to kill Abel, his brother. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. In Genesis 4, Cain killed Abel. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve immediately knew they had done something horrible, right? Their eyes were opened and they covered themselves with fig leaves. Genesis 4, Cain's immediate actions aren't even mentioned in the text. In Genesis 3, when questioned by God, Adam and Eve blame shift, but they don't lie about what happened. In Genesis 4, Cain lies to God's face. In Genesis 3, the serpent and the ground are cursed because of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 4, Cain himself is cursed. In Genesis 3, Eve's consequences are pain and childbirth and Adam's is sweat and toil. In Genesis 4, Cain's consequences are banishment from the ground itself. God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden and clothes them so that they are not naked. God kicks Cain out of his presence and marks him so he's not killed. Do you see what sin does? It deepens and it widens and it sucks everything around it up. So what should we do if we feel ourselves sinking deep in sin? How are we to pursue a righteous life when our sin is ever crouching at the door and we regularly murder our brothers and sisters in our hearts? In our text, we see this small human community in the span of just one generation has been destroyed. You remember Adam and Eve naming Cain? I have acquired the man, the snake crusher. Clearly, he is not the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. He is not the man. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve felt? Like when they saw what their son had done, how they despaired? Do you remember the creation mandate God gave them? Be fruitful and multiply, both fill the earth and subdue it. And when they realized what Cain had done, rather than filling the earth, one son had killed the other brother and emptied the earth. 
Rather than subduing the earth, their remaining son, Cain, was kicked off the earth. The very land he was supposed to work. The creation mandate was inverted by Cain. Cain emptied the earth by killing Abel and was banished from it as a consequence. Cain did not fill the earth and subdue it. He emptied it and left it. His parents must have been wondering, how is God going to keep his promise? Well, God in his grace would give Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And Seth's name means appointed. For God had appointed another son to Adam and Eve. God appointed another son through whom he would keep his promise. And through Seth, thousands of years after Abel was killed by his brother, one of Seth's offsprings came and was killed by his brothers. But this one who came, Jesus, was perfect, spotless, and unlike Abel. He was the very son of God. You see, Abel was a shepherd who offered lambs to God as a sacrifice for himself. Jesus was the good shepherd who offered himself as a lamb and a sacrifice for all. I'm not sure you got that. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do that one more time. You see, Abel was a shepherd who offered lambs to God as a sacrifice for himself. Jesus was the good shepherd who offered himself as a lamb and a sacrifice for all. Cain did not receive God's warning. Jesus did. Jesus knew and kept God's law. Cain did not rule over his sin. Jesus did. Jesus lived perfectly and sinlessly. Cain's sin had consequences. Sin always has consequences. Jesus knew the consequences of sin. And though he had no sin of his own, he subjected himself to the consequences of sin for our sake. The scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that Christ became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus hung on the cross for our sin. Mark 15, 34 tells us on the cross he cried, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was buried in the ground for our sin. That was Friday afternoon, right? They rolled the rock over the tomb. The sun went down. Despair sank in. Hell thought it had won. But on Sunday morning, church... He got up. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection is a declaration and an invitation. A declaration that he is who he claims to be, the Messiah King, and an invitation to submit your life to him and enjoy his presence forever. You see, we're all spiritual kings, but if you are in Christ, then you have salvation. Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 
22 and following, speaking of the kingdom which cannot be shaken. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. And then on down, if you're there in verse 24, and you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the blood of Abel speaks a word of evil. It proclaimed the power and the curse of sin. It proclaimed betrayal and death. But the blood of Jesus speaks a word of grace. It broke the power and curse of sin. It proclaimed reconciliation and life. Someone better look at their neighbor and say, the blood speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus saves us. The blood of Jesus keeps us from sinking. The blood of Jesus makes us clean. The blood of Jesus makes us righteous. The blood of Jesus makes us members of his family. The blood of Jesus rights all wrongs. The blood of Jesus allows us to rule our sin. If you have not put your faith in him, the scriptures say, you need only to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave and you will be saved. His righteousness can be yours. His blood can wash you clean. You can leave behind the emptiness of this world and give your sin over to him. If you have put your faith in him, he is the only one who can give you power to rule and conquer your sin. If you feel yourself sinking deep in sin... Take it to Jesus. If you feel hatred and lust growing in your heart, take it to Jesus. If you feel like you cannot go on, take it to Jesus. Cast your burdens on him, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is gentle and lowly and bids you to embrace his grace through dependence on him. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross and you will know freedom from sin in this life and the next. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Our sin will destroy our most intimate relationships and us if it is not ruled. Why? Because sin deepens and it widens and it sucks everything around it up. Like Cain, sin has infected us and those around us. Brothers kill brothers. Sisters kill sisters, both in our hearts and through our actions. We are sick. We are needy. We cannot save ourselves. We really must seek God in faith and obedience, or our sin will destroy us and those around us in this present life and eternally. God really does warn us. We really do sin, and there really are consequences. You remember our illustration from the beginning with the quicksand. I said your struggling in energy kills you faster if there's no one to help you. Well, there is someone to help you. Jesus Christ. Please, I beg you, receive his warning. Rule over your sin. And as you do, remember the consequences of sin. If you have not put your faith in Christ, 
one day, like Cain, you will forever be banished from the presence of God. However, if you've put your faith in Jesus, rest assured that as deep as sin runs, Christ's grace runs deeper. Let's pray, church.